Would you open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2? Ephesians 2. Uh, if you don't have a handout, uh, you may want to grab one or you can uh, use a digital version. That's always available. Uh, I do want to make mention just of our cards in front of you. There's a QR code to let us know how you're doing. Introduce yourself to us. Um, we have a little card that says, put me in, coach. Christianity is a team sport. Amen? Yeah, it's not just for a handful of people. We're not here watching other people play, play the sport. We're, we're involved in this. So put me in, coach, is just raising your hand saying, I, I want to get involved in some way. Um, and I have, uh, I have gifts and experience that I'd love to submit to the Lord and to this church. And we will start that conversation. Well, we will get to 2 Peter 1, which is our text for this morning, but I want to start in Ephesians 2, and I'm not going to get there for a little while, so don't think I've forgotten. This is still a Bible church. We're going to open our Bible. We're going to look to the Lord, uh, but we're going to take a while to get there. I want to tell you about Zawadi. Zawadi was only a baby when his mom died, and as is common in Congo, many in his tribe believe that he was why his mom died. We know from Scripture that the curse that is on all women in childbirth, sometimes the curse goes further and to the extremes and takes the life of the mom in childbirth. That's what happened to Zawadi. Imagine this, that his birthday was his mom's death day. The sentence on Zawadi's life had come in from the only person that mattered. That was the tribe leader. Zawadi would be buried alive with his mother. He would be given a name that means this, no family and no future. They didn't want any of his bad fortune to infect the rest of the community. No one was there to step in and say otherwise or mourn this decision. Every one of our stories begins in a similar way to Zawadi. Without even knowing what is happening to us or what hangs in the balance, we are dependent on others to fill in the details of our early life. Like Zawadi, all of our stories have a lot at stake. You know, we all love a really good story. We love a happy ending. The guy finally gets the girl. The dog finally makes it back to the family. The quest is successful despite all the struggles. True friendship and and honor are being celebrated over a feast, over a really good meal with some really good music. There's redemption for the hero that in the story had strayed, but now he or she is back. The underdogs who come together as a team and win the game despite all odds. Heroes ruling in their rightful place and finding their rest at last. Cue music, roll credits, drop the mic. We love that. Eli, since he was little, I usually ask my kids permission. He won't mind me sharing this. Eli, since he was little, when we would gather around for family uh, movie night, and there'd be some amazing happy ending. Everything's resolved. We're all feeling good. And then they roll the credits to some like upbeat happy song. Eli, unable to contain himself, will jump up and just dance in front of the TV. He's been doing this since he was little. And most often it breaks out into a full-blown dance party. Like we just can't contain ourselves. So here's what I want to ask you today is when you get to the end of a really satisfying movie, whatever kind of stories you enjoy, What is the impact on you? What happens next? Just think about this for you personally. Are you inspired to live a better story because of what you just witnessed? Are you depressed to return to a story that you feel trapped in, also known as your life? Maybe it depends on the story we just watched or read or heard as to what our reaction is. What I just described are kind of two sides of the heart. 
Two sides of the heart are desire and fear. One guy I was listening to two weeks ago, he said this. He said, desire is what we want. Fear, listen to this, is our wants in distress. Two sides of our heart, desire and fear. Stories stir up desire and fear, don't they? Stories stir up hope and despair. A really good story will often uh, ask or stir up as many questions as it seeks to answer. Let me tell you this, that the Bible that you hold in your hand, whether it looks like this or looks a little bit more traditional, does the same thing. The Bible stirs up questions and answers. The Bible stirs up hope and fear. Let me talk about the Bible for just a second. It's unlike any other book written in all of human history. It is the best-selling and most translated book by far, like by a mile, than anything else you've ever heard of. But that's not even what's most important about it. The Bible was written over a period of roughly 2,000 years by some 40 different authors. But these, ta- these details alone, um, even though they defy natural explanation, um, there's actually a whole lot more to it. Let me rattle through a couple more statistics. The Bible was written by shepherds and by kings, by scholars, by fishermen, prophets, military people, a cupbearer, a priest. These all had different sorts of purposes for writing. The Bible was written from all kinds of different locations, including palaces and prisons, the wilderness, and places of exile. The Bible that you hold in your hand contains history and laws and poetry and prophecy and proverbs. And perhaps most compelling, because of what I'm going to say in a moment, is this, that the Bible was written on three different continents in three different languages. That's a whole bunch of facts that are just undisputed by by scholars that have just studied this. And here's what's the most amazing thing about it. Here's what I would say makes it unequivocally miraculous. It's this, that the Bible is one cohesive story. So I wanted to take you on that journey because if I just stood up here and say, the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, is actually a library that's one cohesive story with a thread of redemption through it. You'd probably nod your heads and go, yeah. Or you go, I don't know about that, depending on where you're at. But it's actually fascinating to just stop and look at some unequivocal facts that are agreed upon by enemies of Jesus Christ and proponents of Jesus Christ. All these details. How on earth could it be one cohesive story? The Bible is a story that tells us how everything gets started, why we are here, what life is all about, and where we are headed. Those are some of the foundational questions of the shared human experience. We all come across a crisis with those periodically. You ever want to try and build a bridge with another human being? Origin, how did everything get started? purpose? Why are we here? Uh, what, is, what is life all about? And then future, where are we headed? These are the kinds of things we all wrestle with. The whole thing, the Bible, start to finish, centers on and focuses on Jesus. If you're at all regular here, in person or viewing or just outside that wall, hello people, you've heard this before. You know this. This isn't news to you. We talk about this all the time. We celebrate and highlight this. So it's not a new insight, but actually a very old one. In fact, what I'm saying is actually a really, really old insight. I want you to see that this isn't isn't a new phenomenon that people are discovering somehow that the Bible is all about Jesus. I want to quote from John Calvin. That's in three weeks, we've had two John Calvin quotes. So uh, Matt quoted one a couple weeks ago. Here we have one more. Here's a church father on this. He, Jesus Christ, and I'm quoting now, is Isaac, 
the beloved son of the father who was offered up as a sacrifice, but nevertheless did not succumb to the power of death. He, Jesus, is Jacob, the watchful shepherd who has such great care for the sheep which he guards. Jesus is the good and compassionate brother, Joseph, who in his glory was not ashamed to acknowledge his brothers, however lowly and abject their condition. Jesus is the great sacrificer and bishop Melchizedek, who has offered an eternal sacrifice once for all. Jesus is the sovereign lawgiver, Moses, writing his law on the tablets of our hearts by his spirit. Jesus is the faithful captain and guide, Joshua, who leads us to the promised land. Jesus is the victorious and noble king, David, bringing by his hand all rebellious power to subjection. He, Jesus, is the magnificent and triumphant King Solomon, governing his kingdom in peace and prosperity. He is the strong and powerful Samson, who by his death has overwhelmed all enemies. The Bible is about Jesus. When we go and we read these things and we see these these judges, we say Jesus is the ultimate judge. When we see kings who have failings and flaws, we say Jesus is the king that doesn't have failures and flaws and reigns forever. I hope today to sort of whet your appetite and stir you to keep reading the story. I hope that some of those names I just read, you're like, wait a minute, how is Jesus like Samson? Go back and find out where Samson is written about and read it. Some of those stories, you probably go, oh, wow, that's powerful. Others, you're like, who is that person? I hope you go and read it for yourself. Go read it again, in fact. Seeking and savoring how Jesus is the peak and point of it all. What it means to be in Christ, by the way, as we see this, moves forward by leaps and bounds as we, as we realize uh, how completely encompassing Jesus is to the grand story. I would say this, that you are not healthy and whole as a human being until you are aligned with the story that you are living in. You are not a healthy and whole human being until you align yourself with what I will just call reality, the truth of the story that you find yourself in. Friends, you are part of something bigger, better, and more important than you can ever imagine. We've been talking about genres of the Bible, and it's no mystery that by far the largest chunk of Scripture as by, by genre, is narrative, historical narrative. Here's what happened. Why is that not a mystery? It's because of this. The faith of Israel and the faith of historical Christianity is founded not in lofty ideas, but in God's acts in human history. One of the things you will find as you read the Bible is you will see names and dates and places All of these things are verifiable or not. It actually subjects this ancient document to scrutiny as we learn more and more. It it subjects it to science. It subjects it to archaeology. It subjects it to philosophy. It subjects it to history. The Bible is a book talking about these things. So what am I talking about when I talk about historical narrative? Well, think about this. Much of the Old Testament is just saying, here's what happened. What are the Gospels? They are a biography. There are four viewpoints from four different authors of a biography on the birth, life, works, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Are they not? They are telling you what happened. They present themselves that way. Many of the letters even that we see, they're called the epistles, many of those are saying what happened. We just walked through the book of 2 Timothy where that has context and stories and avoid Alexander, he did the gospel much harm. That's a historical thing. He's saying that happened. So we actually see this woven through all kinds of different things. This series I'm calling Reading Over Jesus' Shoulder. Reading Over Jesus' Shoulder, that every time we come to the scripture, To imagine reading it over our big brother Jesus, 
And especially the Old Testament. Think about the Old Testament, that everything we read in the Old Testament, that was his scripture. Every passage, every sentence, those are the very books that he would have read when he was here on earth. This little tagline to it is really powerful. Before it is ours to apply, the Bible is his to fulfill. So these shapes that you see in this graphic all represent different kinds of genres in the Bible. Remember a bookstore? If you go into a bookstore, it's very important. There's still a handful left. Barnes and Nobles is still alive. It's about a mile from here. And if you walk into a physical bookstore, you can kind of actually get your bearings. And I know that store, so you walk in. There's a whole magazine section over here. There's like calendars over here. I know right where the Christian section is. It's fairly small, just a warning. Right? Fiction, nonfiction, young adult, young fiction, uh, biography, whatever it is. How-to books. So orienting yourself in the bookstore allows you to say, what am I reading? What is being put forth to me? It matters how we read the scripture. The different genres are different and distinct, and yet they fit together. And that's what I want to draw our attention to. We started this series in May, and what I'm going to do is for the next about probably three years, take a couple little dips at a time. We did three weeks on law. If I told you in advance, by the way, hey, we're going to study the biblical genre of law for the next three weeks. Show up. Some of you are like, woo, look at the time. But it's powerful to see how Jesus read the law. It's pow- it was powerful to, to get into that and see it. I have some specific hopes for this long-term series. I am preaching for the long game by doing this. I'm not going to go over each of these, but we talked about return on investment. If I'm going to invest my time learning genres of the Bible, I'm not planning on going to seminary. What is this all about? What it's about is being able to interpret the story. Where are we at in the story? And the title this morning is quite simply this. Keep reading. You'll love the ending. Keep reading. You'll love the ending. That's where we're going this morning. Now, of course, there's different sort of subgenres. So, for instance, if I say narrative or story, we're going to talk about that this morning. Um, stories in the, in the Bibles might fall into some different things. Parables, for instance, are a giant teaching tool of Jesus. What are parables? Parables are made-up stories that teach a point. A parable is something a lot different than history. Here's what happened, right? And so, again, as a, as a teacher... It's really important to, to, to distinguish, is this a myth? Is this just a made-up fable? Is this a parable, or is this what actually happened? Today we're looking at historical narratives, so this is what happened. To realize that it's all about Jesus. It's his words and life that shape us, and yet here's what's fascinating about Jesus. Jesus, the word made flesh, was never published. When did Jesus write in the Bible? Think about it. There's at least one time that popped into my mind. Remember he bends down and he writes in the dirt? So no one took a screenshot. We have no idea what that was. It was never published. But think about this. The words and life of Jesus Christ, I stand here before, like many of you, and say, have fundamentally changed and altered my story. My life is being lived on the words of Jesus Christ, and yet he didn't write a single word. So what did he do? Jesus told and lived stories. And even more important that I want to show you for the Old Testament and to raise your appetite for the Old Testament is he pointed back to the story, the story of God, the story of the Israelites, the story of what's to come. So only as we grow in awareness and cooperation of the part that you play in what God has done, is doing, and is going to do. Do the questions and sort of the the gnawing begin to get answered in you? There's a built-in restlessness that we're created with. Jesus said something really powerful in John 10, 35. Just listen, he says this, Scripture cannot be broken. Scripture cannot be broken. Look at this image again. What he's saying is this, all those parts matter. He's really just teaching us what the rest of Scripture tells us. 
2 Timothy 3.16, we just looked at this in our series. But all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. All of it? That's what the Bible says. All of it. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. Not only for our salvation in this life and the next, but as verse 15 of this passage says, but also for every good work right now. You want to know what you should be doing on a Sunday morning? I have a hunch. You're not here because of name recognition and Dave's platform and brand. I don't really have one. You're here, many of you, most of you, perhaps all of you, because God's word has shaped your life and has said, gather with the believers, meekly receive the implanted word, sit under biblical teaching, worship, as Rob said, pause, Sabbath, rest in me, re-remind yourself, I am the good, good father. You've heard a thousand stories of what I'm like. You listen to me. You might have a thousand voices in your head telling you who you are. You listen to me. You are the beloved right now. Not because of what you did or didn't do last week or what you're planning on doing this coming week. You are the beloved in Christ because what has been done, it's objectively settled and that will never ever change. You stay there. You return there. You remember who I am. You remember who you are. The law is perfect. The word is very pure. The law is true. Read the Psalms. Read the Proverbs. Read your Bible. Not only will it tell this about itself, you will experience it in your life. The story the Bible is telling is the most beautiful, complex, true, profitable story you will ever read, learn, hear, or experience. It is perfect. Sometimes the grand story of Scripture shows up in little snippets and pockets. Let me give you one from last week. I was doing the CG questions from last week. A friend and mentor and fellow pastor that I used to serve with, Glenn Miller, preached. And as he was describing about uh, disciples in a boat in a storm, I'm just sitting there and I thought, boy, he's actually describing what's common to everyone who has become a Christian. Our new life began once we are born again, is, is how the scriptures put it. But think about what he walked through is that they cry out to Jesus in their distress. Jesus comes near. They receive him into their boat, and the boat gets to where it needs to go. Oh, in between there, they worship him. As they receive him into the boat, they worship him, and the boat shows up where it needs to go. I'm like, that's the Christian story. That is my story being told. It's actually common to every Christian. There's some key components there. Let me tell you the most famous one. You already know it. For God so loved the world that what? He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not die or perish but will live for eternity. They are gifted eternal life. You know why John 3.16 is such a famous verse? That's the grand story in a portable form that you can memorize in a handful of words. As you read the scriptures, and your heart soars over some deliverance, over some proclamation that God's going to get the bad guys and set things right, and he's providing warning, and he's providing repentance opportunities all along. He's so patient. He's so steadfast. As you read the story unfold, every salvation experience that you celebrate, every tribulation that gets resolved, every prisoner that gets free, every disease that gets healed, every restoration of things that were torn apart, Those things are actually contained in that little verse. So even as you read the scripture, look for sort of, wow, that's touching into the grand arc of of scripture, kind of contained in this little nugget. I hope you see today, I hope you leave today with an absolute fresh marveling at the author. That as you see how these pieces fit together, that, that God not only authored all of creation and history, but he authored the Bible, and it's all right there. Let me do a quick important detour for this. Sometimes Christians can let themselves off the hook by saying something that's kind of like nonsensical, and you're like, well, wait, what about this? I'll tell you the challenge of a preacher. There, there's, there's not a possible way I could go and attach all the different what-ifs and nuances that sort of need to be unpacked. But let me unpack one. When I say God is the author of Scripture... 
You might be asking yourself, wait, did God write it or did just regular people write it? And the answer is yes and yes. And it's two different doctrines that sit side by side. Here they are. It's the doctrine of inspiration and the doctrine of inerrancy. The doctrine of of, of inspiration says this. God didn't write the Bible with a pen. He wrote it using human instruments, meaning people and personality and place and experience and style. God breathed out as people were carried along by the Spirit. God the Spirit wrote the Bible through regular people. That's the human part. That's divine inspiration. And God oversaw the whole process from start to finish. Not only putting the pieces together, but forming it into a cohesive 66-book library called the Bible. Not only that, but preserving it through human history. Not only that, but the transmission of ancient language into modern language. God oversaw it all. He's able and capable capable to do that. So he is the origin and source of all that is contained in the Scriptures. That's the doctrine of inerrancy. It's not a book about God written by fallible human beings. It is God's book, and it's infallible, unable to make a mistake. It's really important that we're careful of what stories that we look at, what stories we let into our life, what stories we read and watch. They have a way of sort of shaping your story because they get into you. Stories help us sort of sort things and make sense of things. And we can actually find ourselves saying and using the logic of a really angry person on a radio driving to work that morning that's discussing political fighting. And all of a sudden, we're using that logic and that language with our spouse, with our kids, with our coworkers. Stories have a way of sort of getting inside of us. So what lies are we being told? Who's telling them? And how can we tell the difference? How can we tell a story worth investing our time and money into? Let me give you a one-sentence, fun times memory of 2020. Ready? Fake news and medical claims backed by science. Fake news and medical claims backed by science. Man, we were bombarded by this stuff. That's fake news. Yeah, well, how do you know? I mean, what, what about your news? All sides pointing to every other side calling out fake news. And then so many claims boldly asserting, this is what we know. And it's backed by science. Let me tell you, when I was growing up, if you attached news or science, it actually meant something. Like there was genuine weight to that. People did not go to print until they had their facts checked. Does that seem to be out the window these days? I mean, you can write whatever you want. There's no retraction statements. There's no big, bold public apologies. Hey, I said this on the national stage. Let me come back and correct it. I was wrong. Man, I would weep for joy if I ever heard that happen. I mean, I would just, I would, that's the kind of thing I would sprint. That's why I'd want to go viral. It's like, let's hold one another accountable for what's put out there. But here's a part of why that's thriving. If we aren't doing it individually as a community, it's just going to keep getting put out there. And as the scriptures say, people are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And these little machines in our pockets, (laughs) like exponentially, point the direction of to and fro in, in some incredible directions. So realize this, that all facts and data aren't enough to arrive at what is true. Here's why. They require interpretation. Facts and data require interpretation from, let's say, reporters and scientists. Science just means knowledge. So bits of things put out to you, facts and knowledge, require some sort of interpretation. So, of course, movies and books and songs are telling a story. They're trying to stir up uh, an emotion. They're trying to answer a question. They're trying to speak to some ache. But as we scroll through any news feed at all, remember, there are people just shaping a narrative of what is going on in the world and really, by implication, what the solutions are. 
I want you just to think about this. This is one of your community group questions. I didn't put a percentage up there. But life is some percentage of what actually happens and some percentage of how you interpret what happened. There's all kinds of fascinating uh, research done by, uh, by people who live through an experience and remember it a completely different way. If you have siblings, we already know this. If you're an adult and you have siblings that are still alive, you talk about a situation and you're like, no, 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 that's not how it happened. We had a major bomb go off in our church when I was young. I've talked about it here before. Adultery was committed by our senior pastor. And that sent a rift, and the interpretation of what happened there sent two of my brothers in one direction, actually three of them for a season, three of my brothers in one direction and one of us in another direction. Same exact events happen, but the interpretation of what's going on and how to make sense of it and what to do about it is a giant portion of it. So I'm not going to give you the answer. I don't know the answer of this. But I do know that the way that we interpret events has a giant implication for how we move forward. And the soundtrack that we hear and the voices that we hear kind of rolling through our head. Here's what's interesting. Some of us actually have taken on a role or a character, maybe without ever naming it or identifying it. But let me play this out a little bit. If I am a victim and I see myself as a victim, then what happens to me gets interpreted through the lens and role and character of a victim. And so the way I interpret that and move forward with that is one thing. What if, on the other hand, I see myself as a hero? What if I see myself as a rescuer? Here's one, misunderstood genius. Right? Some people are like, people just misunderstand me. I've got something to say. I've got this. I've got this gift. I'm just constantly misunderstood. Some of you know someone or you are that person who's the fixer. So when things happen, you're like, man, Bob the Builder comes out, right? Like you are just the fixer. And so that's how you hear things. That's how you speak. That's where you start mapping out your your plan. Some of you might know this about yourself. You're the villain. You're like, man, I've got so much dark in me and dark thoughts. When I hear that, I actually think evil thoughts of what I can, how I can leverage that for evil. What's really dangerous is when you think the evil you're doing is good. And the conscience can get seared to a point where the villain thinks themselves the hero. So here's what's interesting. Next time you say to someone, hey, what's happening? What's going on? You might create an existential crisis in that person. They're like, I don't know. I'm still rendering the interpretation. I mean, I know what happened, but I don't know how to interpret it. And I don't know what role I play. So be careful. If you ask someone what's happening, que paso? What's happening? How's it going? What's up? And they freak out, give them some grace. Okay, they may have heard this sermon. Um, Here's what the Bible is. The Bible is our gift from God to make sense of the world and our world. So not just the world and what's going on out there, but what's going on right in here. And I'll tell you, you are a complex web of emotions and thoughts and experiences and snippets. And we need help figuring out what's going on in here. In here, right? The inner world and the outer world. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. I told you I'd get there. We're here. I am taking you right now this morning. I want to take you up to a mountain peak. And I want to show you a vista of where we are right now. And I want to point forward to where the story, God's story, is pointing. Okay, here it is. We opened last Sunday reading verse 4. But God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here's the view. Ready? Verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
When we sing God is in this story, that's not just a kind of hallmark channel cliche statement. This is the view. This is why I can say with confidence, you're going to love the ending. Keep reading. Keep going. No matter where you are today in the story, keep it up. Keep going. When I say you're going to love the ending and to keep going, I mean two things, okay? One is I mean it sort of metaphorically. In the days of our life, in the pages of our life, keep reading, keep going, press on. That's kind of like, woo, like subjective, like out there, whoa, the pages of my life. I don't know if I can get a hold of that. Here's what I also mean. I mean in the actual pages of Scripture, keep reading the story. Keep at it. You're going to love the ending. And they lived happily ever after. Man, we, we love this. In fact, it's so funny how a lot of times people are just, they're so sick of making that story, and so they, they make some other story, and they have an alternate ending. They do a test run, and it bombs. They hate it. They're like, no, don't have them die in the end. Don't have them not find love. Let, you know, do this. Like, get, it, get it together. People love it. You know, who, you know who knows that people will buy this Disney? I mean, Disney says, look, for a couple days at least, we're going to try to make this actually a magical kingdom where, where this comes true. Um, just give us a million dollars for it, and it's yours. People are like, man, that's a bargain. I'm all over that. And they lived happily ever after. Here's what's true. We ache to live a great story, not just to see one or to read one or imagine what could be. We long for happily ever after. We want to vanquish the bad guys, escape the unjust prison, right some terrible wrong. We want to risk it all and have it actually work out in the end. But here's what I know. While we ache and long to live and be part of a great story, real life is a pain. Real life is a pain. I mean, here's here's what's true of real life. Don't you think of your best lines after the scene is over? Oh, I should have said that. That would have been so much better. But we don't get a redo. Like the scene's over. So we think about it after the fact. Isn't it true that others in your story must have the wrong script? I mean, you're like, no, we're, right now we're doing this. You're supposed to do this back. What's happening? Can we talk about character development for a second? What makes a really good story is really good character development. That sort of has a double ring for a human being, doesn't it? The character development going on in me is not happening at the pace I wish it was. In fact, truth be told, there's a severe lacking. And the way that characters actually developed, Glenn spoke to this last week. Can we do it a different way? Can't you just write in that Dave went through a few hard things and now he's shining like gold? It's not the process. What's worse is this. I mentioned this earlier that villains sometimes seem to be the heroes. Church, when things are darkest and most painful, light and truth and healing are most glorious. Hear me. God promises you you're going to love the ending. This does have a point. Part of reading the histories, part of reading the stories, is that we, if we stop partway into Paul's story or Stephen's story or Joseph's story or David's story or anyone, we would look at it with despair, but it prods us to keep going. As a character in C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce says, He says, that is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, catch this, will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. I just finished a book this week. Josh and I shared a little conversation about this. It's by Dane Ortland. I highly recommend it to you. It's called Gentle and Lowly. It's just navigating, it's sort of like exposing the inner life of Jesus. That he's gentle and lowly. 
But Dane Ortland says this, if you are in Christ, catch this, you have been eternally invincible. He actually made it forward. Invincibilized. You're invincible for all eternity because he's got you. So should we believe in happily ever after or not? When it comes to anything that we receive as true, we must consider the source. What claims are being made and by who? Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1. And I'm going to put it up on the screen. But it's good to check. It's good to earmark this for further study. What claims are being made and by who? When you hear something, when something's retweeted, reposted, told to you, you go, well, who says? Where did you hear that? You want to know these things because we don't want to be duped. 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 16, says this. It says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Pause for a second. Peter is distinguishing between fake news and the latest backed by science claim, aka cleverly devised myths, versus what is true. He is putting forth this report as an eyewitness. This actually happened. I saw it. In a moment, listen for this. He's going to say, I heard it. I am coming to you as a firsthand witness to this. Verse 17. For when I received, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. When did that happen? At Jesus' baptism. The gospel said a voice cried out, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's what Peter's referencing, verse 8. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So let me make an an edit, a correction. A second time, the voice of God, the Father, was heard on the mountainside. And that was when Peter was yapping about building a temple, we should do something. He kind of opens his mouth readily sometimes. And the account is, this is my beloved son, listen to him. The world is full of truth claims. So how are we to know what's true and what's not? I would submit to you, we are surrounded by prophets on all sides claiming news. This happens in a religious setting and a secular setting. This happens by entertainers and by scientists, by reporters, and by bloggers. So how about the stories of the Bible? This is why it's so important to get clear on what genre are we talking about, what's actually being said. We don't want to have a higher view of Scripture than Jesus did. That's actually possible. Did you know that? Jesus says you're searching the Scriptures because you think the life is in the words in the text. It's not there. They point to me. So we don't want to have a higher view of Scripture. It's not our God. But nor do we want a lower view of Scripture than Jesus had. Bible stories are easy to read but hard to understand. And even harder to apply. Here's why. They're written about people who lived a long time ago 
in a faraway place. Sounds like a Star Wars beginning right there. And they're written by people with a very different sense of sort of sensibilities and framework. So what that means is this. We might apply our current modern historical way of writing and want to translate that and impose that on ancient Near East writers or older. So the Bible contains dozens of bizarre details that feel tiresome and pointless and confusing. And they leave out some details that we would find really, really crucial. Ever experienced this as you read the Bible? It's all there. So here's the encouragement. Keep going. Keep at it. I was told before I watched this one uh, TV series, I'm a hard sell to start something new because I don't watch that much TV outside of sports. And so my wife says, get past the first two episodes. Get past the first two episodes. It's going to be worth it. Keep watching. You're going to love the ending. In the end, I'm really glad I did. I took her word for it. Halfway through the second one, I'm like, really? Are you sure? She's like, keep at it. It's going to make sense. It's setting things up. The Bible has loads of this. Here's the key to understanding the scriptures. And we're going to unpack this more next week. I'm going to take this in two weeks. Next week, I want to look at when when that's written, that Jesus is the Isaac, Jesus is Melchizedek, Jesus is the greater Samson. What does that mean? And how can I do that myself? How can I read it that way for myself? Here it is. Ready? The key is to read Jesus and the good news proclaimed as the filter or lens by what you're reading. That's the most simple thing I can imagine as far as like, what's my tool in my back pocket that I can read of any part of scripture? Without the lens of Jesus and his gospel, catch this, you will misread, misunderstand, and misapply the scriptures. We hear this preaching all the time. You've got giants in your life. Let me give you the five smooth stones of faith so that you can slay them, just like David did. Who's the hero? Me. My name's actually David, but I would read that as I'm the hero of that. Peter got out of the boat and walked. If you have enough faith, you too can get out. Do you hear Jesus' voice? I don't know if I have enough faith, but I guess I should try it. There's a way of reading the scripture where it keeps coming back to me. Do you know who lives the world where thinking every single thing is about them? No, not your narcissist neighbor, right? It is, here it is, it's a kindergartner. It is a proper spirit, it's a proper development of a human being to think, as a kindergartner, the whole world revolves around them. That's their world experience. If we never spiritually grow out of that kindergarten phase, we will be thoroughly confused and misapplying the scriptures all the time. Let me wrap it up by bridging your story to the kingdom story. And I do this by way of our opening guy. Ben, can you come on up? As the band comes up, don't lose this. Let me go back to Zawadi. Zawadi was at the Christian Alliance for Orphans conference this last year. I was just there a couple of weeks ago. The story that I'm telling is his. You know what the theme of that conference was? It was planted, not buried. Think about a planting and a burial. Midway through the story, they feel identical. It's dark. There's dirt all over you. You're alone. You have no idea what's happening. But a planting and a burial could not be more different. Christian, hear me. If you are in Christ, it's always a planting and never a burial. Always. It's always a planting and never a burial. There's resurrection coming up sooner or later. And as people planted by God, not only do we come up new and alive, but we actually join our God in the planting mission. Zawadi was being cared for in those first moments by a woman in his his tribe named Kavita. She saw what was going on. She saw the decision made over this little boy's life, and she decided to act. You see, she had heard some Western missionaries come and speak of the creator God, the God who was father-like and would never want a baby to die because every single life bore his image and mattered immensely. So she stepped in 
went to the missionaries. And she said, is there any way you can take this, ba- the, this baby? Or is there a family you could find that would take in this baby? You see, his life is at stake right now. Well, guess what? These Western missionaries found a Christian family in Europe. They took him in. Kavita gave him a new name the day he was rescued. Zawadi means gift from God. He was raised in Europe, part-time in Africa. He now resides in the Midwest in the United States. Think about this. A man that was literally about to be buried with the name. No family, no future was actually just being planted. The hardship that started changed. Why? Because the gospel, the story came in and rescued this man. Gave him a brand new name. Your name will now mean gift from God. Gave him a future. Gave him an inheritance. Gave him a new family. The gospel saves and changes our life. Close your eyes and just listen to this passage and then we're going to sing. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God.